Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. All right, we're back in the studio for the sixth episode, and here we're going to talk about vermicast and vermicast brews. So I'm joined by some of our team here. Denver Black, Trent Graybill, and Ryan Grunewig. Yeah, guys. So vermicast, compost, vermicast, what is it? Go for it. So vermicast, when we're talking about vermicasting, we're talking about worms, but not just any and all worms. We're talking specifically about composting worms or like Asenia fetida, if I pronounce that right, which is a particular type of earthworm that likes to live in litter and does not like to live in the soil. And uh, so it's, it's very good at breaking down residues. You, you'll find these used to break down food waste and food waste programs and things like that. And it turns out that they produce incredible byproducts. So when we talk about vermicast, worm cast as a casting, it's kind of, you know, I hate to reduce it to just poop because it's, it's definitely much more than that. There's, there's mucilage and all sorts of things that go along with that. But in general, it is. It's the resultant of what these worms consume. And it's filled with microorganisms, with enzymes, with uh, things like chitazan and all sorts of goodies that, that have plant growth regulating effects and also have stimulating effects. And so when we're talking about vermicast brew, so we're talking about taking the, the casting. So you start with, with whether it's yard waste or food waste or manure and these worms break it down. And then when we take that casting, we'd either spread the cast the castings on the soil, or we can do a brew. Now we call it a brew because there's extracts, which is kind of the idea of just suspending some of this dry material in water and letting what's on that go into solution and then apply that. Or teas on the far side, which we know of compost teas, where generally speaking, we, we're going to put that material, that composted material in water, and then we're going to add food sources like starches, you know, carbohydrates, amino acids, and we're going to bubble air into it so that it's aerobic and, and let it go for you know, usually up to 72 hours. Now, this is kind of somewhere in the middle. The product we're using is specifically, we will actually take it and put it in water, bubble it, but we're only talking 24 hours and we're not modifying the temperature and the food source is small. So it's, it's kind of somewhere in the middle and that's why we call it a brew. But so that's kind of, kind of what it is. Do you guys have anything to yeah, add I to just, that? I was going to back up a little bit talking about verm, vermicastings, worm castings, worm compost, compost that's been digested and ate by worms and then pooped out, so to speak. The reason that it's incredible, is, well, there's several different reasons it's incredible, but the main reason it's incredible is the fact that there is such a wide array of species of organisms that come out of worms. It's insane. I mean, I've read anywhere from 15 to 30,000 different species, which is nuts. And I, I don't have any peer-reviewed papers to, you know, to quantify to back that up. There's, I've just read certain publications, people talking about that. So I'm sure hopefully here in the near future with the advent of PCR analysis and different types of microbiome DNA analysis, 
hopefully we'll be able to identify all of those different, you know, species soon and what they do. But that's the, when we talk about soil health and microbiology and increasing biology in the soil, worms are probably the best tool that does that for us. They decompose residue on the soil surface, break it down, and then turn it back into humus and organic matter that the plants can use. And it's combined with those organisms. So when we talk about taking that and then using it on our farms, a lot of times worm casting compost can be fairly expensive just because it's time consuming. You're using worms under a, you know, somewhat of a, you know, controlled environment with moisture and temperature, keep them happy and allowing them to compost it rather than just allowing bacteria and heat in a typical compost, you know, scenario. But what we can do and what you mentioned, Denver, is brewing it. And I think the idea behind that is you can take 10 pounds of compost that you could cover a few square feet and put that into solution with some food sources into water with, you know, a commercial blower system with commercial type of diffusers that you have fine bubbles and coarse bubbles and aerate it and you oxygenate that compost and the bacteria in there begin to grow. And the more oxygen it has, and then there's that oxygen, you know, molecules kind of scrub them off of that carbon complex or the compost itself, then they replicate and replicate and replicate. And now that 10 pounds of compost from worms that could cover a few square feet, you multiply literally by billions. And some of the stuff that, you know, we use, we've been told is upwards of two plus billion CFU. So two billion organisms per colony forming unit on a microgram. So and know, thousands of different right? a pinpoint and tens of thousands of different species, which is insane. It's incredible. We don't even know what all they do, but what we do know is that that aerobic tea, so to speak of all those organisms is incredible at suppressing pathogens and releasing nutrients. It's amazing. And we have a lot of different information on that. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I'd like to point out too, as we kind of discuss this, I know for me, you know, I started with my experience other than, you know, just average experience in the field, started with my experience with Vermicast tea with worm gold, the, the Vermicast tea we use. And uh, so started with the results more, but after seeing incredible results, I wanted to understand this a lot more. So I, I started looking, perusing the internet, looking for, for papers and such, and which there are many, but I found this book, which is just excellent, called The Warm Farmer's Handbook by Rhonda Sherman. And uh, it's a tremendous resource. And in it, for instance, you, you mentioned disease suppression, Trent. And so, you know, in here that she, she mentions and shows a study done by Ohio State University that I find particularly fascinating because, you know, in the, the worm casts, you know, so you talk, well, why don't you just use the worm castings? Isn't that better? Isn't that more? Aren't, the, aren't we missing something by leaving the castings behind? Some might say, and, or when we're talking about compost, well, shouldn't we just apply the compost instead of using a, a brew or an extract? So this study was particularly enlightening because they compared, so they're, they're looking at, at pythium suppression and they, they compared, they used a control and then they used sterilized vermicasts and then unsterilized vermicast, right? Which has, so, so basically what you're comparing is the difference between the chemistry, if you will, the stuff that comes from the worms versus 
the chemistry and the biology, the microbes you were just talking about. And what's incredible is you see at a disease severity rating on the control of uh, about a 3.3 in the control where they sterilized it, it was anywhere from 2.5 to 3.1. And where it was unsterilized, it was at the highest about 1.3 down to down to one. And so you can see there's a humongous difference between sterilized and unsterilized. So showing just how important the living organisms are in it. And when we're talking about a brew, we're starting with with those organisms that are held on and comprised in that, but then we're shaking them off and we're allowing them to multiply because you know, as this study from Ohio State proves, like the organisms that are in and come out of those worms are what's suppressing pythium. And, and that's pretty massive. Pythium is a huge problem affecting many crops like avocados have a huge detriment. I think one thing to consider is, you know, sometimes people are like, well, why would I do something like this if I have earthworms in my ground? And I guess earthworms in the soil, obviously, the more you have, the more bacteria you should have because of what they're producing and digesting. But many times we have very little earthworms in a lot of commercial agriculture. And, you know, if we're, if we follow a lot of these, uh, regenerative organic principles with keeping our soil covered and use, utilizing cover crops and animals and all these different things to really build the soil and treat it like a living organism. And we're balancing our minerals specifically, you're going to have an environment in which there is more earthworms and you're, you know, you're going to have a more disease suppressive soil. But many times in, in commercial agriculture, it's tough with the type, the way we get paid on different types of crops that we grow, it can be tough for producers to change everything about their entire operation. So again, how do we take this amazing thing that earthworms do and apply it to commercial agriculture? And that's why we're finding, hey, if we can take this compost from these worms and we can brew it, multiply it, take the biological aspect, which is the important part anyways, and then apply that through irrigation, foliar sprays, you know, et cetera, we can get a lot of those same benefits. It's phenomenal, especially when it comes to disease suppressive. And I have a book here that has about probably 14 different pathogens. I mean, everything from pythiums, clarentinia, verticillium, phytophthora, you name it, that in vitro, in the lab, complete suppression of those diseases. And a lot of these are significant issues in, in agriculture that cost millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars of loss every year. And here, the organisms produced by worms are the answer or are part of the answer. So if we can use that, which we have, it's a lot of fun because you can end up basically mitigating the need for fumigation and a lot of things that um, we do that's potentially toxic to try to deal with diseases we can do with a probiotic effect rather than an antibiotic, you know, approach, which is really exciting. And we're not talking about a biopesticide. We're talking about suppression through competition, right? Yep. We're not talking about something that's, oh, this kills that. Yep. That's not what we're talking about, are yep. we? We're talking about when we put down these organisms that are beneficial, they balance and we find the pathogenic organisms are not competitive. Yep, exactly right. And the other thing too is if you're putting out 10, 15, 20 gallons, sometimes even more, 30 gallons per acre 
of a live aerobic tea that has that many billion organisms per gram or per milliliter, the effect on nutrients is amazing. And that's the other thing I think that is, like you mentioned, it's a suppressive action. We're out competing good guys versus bad guys. So it's not necessarily that we're killing things. We're just out competing it and suppressing it. There's, they're overwhelmed. They can't propagate. The pathogens just can't do what they normally would do. They can't just take over things and then make the plant sick and die. They can't do that anymore because of the competition. But the other thing that these beneficial organisms do is basically deal with and digest certain types of toxicities, specifically sodium, chloride, and we're finding that a lot of these diseased systems and plants have toxicities of those elements, sodium, chloride, aluminum, et cetera. And by increasing the biology with something like vermicasting tea, you mitigate some of those issues and then your disease situations tend to slowly dissipate, which is really, really cool. Really exciting. So can we circle back to something real quick? I know Trent, you, you just had said, you know, farmers and growers will say, I have earthworms. So, you know, why would I need to incorporate a biological inoculum, something to boost the microbiome in the soil? And I think that can go to what the actual diet of the earthworms are. And so a farmer that has earthworms, what are they digesting in the soil, in that particular soil, depending on how it's treated and what are the worms that we're using for this vermicast brew? What's the diet of those worms? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, something that I didn't think about. But specifically, the, the vermicastings that we have found that seem to perform the best are ones that are fed specific diets that are really high in chitin and in, in cellulose. And the reason is, is because a lot of the, you know, it takes very robust digestive recycling bacteria to break those types of materials down. And a lot of our pathogens, fungi, spore forms, chewing, sucking insects, nematodes, a lot of these things have, have chitin in their exoskeleton or in their fungal bodies. Cellulose is a part of that. But with what they've done is they've taken feedstock basically that are high in those materials, put it into the compost that these worms are digesting. And now when those worms are breaking that material down, they are exuding or basically for lack of a better term, pooping out the bacteria that was that they, they had to assimilate the organisms in their stomach to break down what they're eating. So for example, if you, you know, here and you eat an American diet and then you go to Asia or something where it's quite a bit different diet, it's going to take you a while for your gut microbiome to adjust to a different food source. Your body will change and adapt. And these worms are the same way. And so depending on what they're being fed is depending on what they are exuding. And so that's something that's unique about what we've found is that is huge when it comes to pathogen suppression, basically reducing the negative impacts of a lot of these insects and things that we deal with is then you take that, you brew it, and now you're growing those types of organisms that are much more competitive than other types of organisms if, you know, depending if they was fed a different diet. So you're saying that if this particular vermicast brew we use is high in chitin and cellulose degraders. Yep. Those types of organisms. And that's what makes it more effective, especially at preventing insects 
and suppressing insects and diseases, for instance, like powdery mildew or sclerotinia, where those are chitin based. And so it dissolves, it literally dissolves or eats that, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. What about some experiences? I think, uh, you know, I see you've got in front of you, you've got a, something on your computer. They're talking about salts, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. This was something that some guys in California did where they started injecting worm casting tea, worm casting tea into the drip on grapes. And they saw a dramatic, dramatic, you know, from basically an EC of over 40 salt levels down to below 10 within, you know, a two, three month period. And so we don't know exactly how that works, where that, where does that salt and chloride go? You know, if you want to get controversial and talk about Louis Kirvan's book, we could dive into biotransmutation of elements, which we probably don't have time to do, but you know, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe they're, you know, those bacteria, these organisms, if they do have the ability to move electrons, then maybe they are changing one thing into another, which is mind blowing. Yeah, protons and neutrons even. Yep. So, so that's one thing that, that's been really interesting is how these organisms can deal with salt stress and increase water holding capacity. There's so much, so many things. One of the biggest things that we have seen is on in more perennial crops where there is say an orchard, for example, that's just stunted. Things are not doing, not growing like they should be. And you can put on more fertilizer, which the growers have already tried and doesn't necessarily do a whole lot. And then you put all these organisms from worm casting tea and all of a sudden things explode. And so that's, that's been one of the main tools we've used to basically wake up old sick soil. We've seen it in hops and orchards and so many different areas where you do something like this. And it's, it's basically, this is a, basically a tool. It's an incredible tool that is, you know, technically an organic tool that is improving nutrient use efficiency and increasing the disease suppressiveness of soils. And it's something you can do on a large commercial scale. It's um, almost like a multi-tool and right. As we're yeah, talking about a tool, yeah, that's what totally as you're saying that I'm thinking, man, we see it, we see it affecting sodium and beneficially reducing sodium. We see it mineralizing, making our nutrients like calcium and phosphorus more available. We see it suppressing diseases, right? We see it do, what else, what else does it do, right? I mean, it, it's incredible to see this one, this one component are affecting so many different aspects. I know for me, particularly, you know, garlic, I had a field of garlic, a two fields of garlic, one, one using the worm gold and one not using our, the worm gold Thermocast brew and the differences one had, but granted they were both, there were two different paradigms. One, one wasn't my field. It was, it was a competing company's field and the other was mine. And the competing company's field had botrytis they were dealing with and we had none. We had no botrytis and, uh, in our, the sap samples looked incredible. We saw, you know, another at a CBD field that I was working on and, uh, using the worm gold with- You're talking about hemp? Yeah, that's right. Hemp, yes, hemp for CBD. Using the worm gold, using using sea crop because we've got all those organisms, right? We want cofactors, so we need trace elements and some fish molasses and some nitrogen fixers, and and that was that was it through the drip. And this crop was flush with every nutrient it needed. It had sufficient nitrogen, sufficient potassium, sufficient trace elements. And it's just amazing, you know, just as we're talking about, we've been talking about that in previous episodes about, about that different paradigm 
and this being so diverse and, and so many microorganisms that the plant is able to utilize and leverage, whether that's through rhizophagy or through, through signaling, it's like the boots on the ground. Right, the plant's able to leverage these organisms when we when we apply them. So, uh, how about uh, you, Ryan? Have you got what experience? Have you had any experience, direct experience with that, or something you've seen that stood out to you? Mm-hmm. Nothing of a curative effect, more of a preventative. Uh, there's a variety of hops. Mosaic is a variety, and it's quite susceptible to crown root rot disease, is what they call it, or Phytophthora. And uh, using vermicast brews throughout the whole season, full rate, and we actually saw no crown root rot or phytophthora issues or problems all the way until harvest. The crop hung out there beautifully, no pests. And uh, and, and a lot of it is credited to the vermicast bruise, that increase of biology, the suppression of those fungal pathogens. Because with wind storms, uh, those vines getting beat around, like that causes a lot of breakage, a lot of vines that'll kind of crack and shatter and cause, you know, the opportunity for fungal pathogens to, you know, get in there. But with good suppression, you know, throughout the whole season, we we didn't see any issues in, in a variety that's quite susceptible to those problems. And and these are nasty issues that we are preventing that have rather expensive means of fixing conventionally. I know um, my brother-in-law down in New Mexico saw some pretty phenomenal results with using vermicasting tea, specifically in peppers. The one of the things he did with a grower was... All they did was take the conventional program and add vermicasting tea to the program and do one field versus not another field. And it was phenomenal that some of the results that they had, they were doing it more from a disease standpoint, trying to deal with verticillium wilt because they had, you know, saw that in the lab, actually in the university, they saw it suppress verticillium, which was very impressive for a consortium of organisms to, to do that. And so that was the reason they were using it. But as a byproduct of using it to suppress, you know, an issue that they dealt with, they saw an increase from, you know, basically 25 tons all the way over 30 tons. So basically a, over a six ton increase in yield, which is really, really, really good in chili peppers. And that was just the addition of beneficial organisms. Something I found tremendous, uh, it's kind of some of these things you discover uh, in roundabout ways. And so, you know, I I was amazed. Uh, Last winter, I was doing some work in a grow tent during the winter for uh, microgreens because I wanted to have fresh, green, crunchy, nutritious vegetables in the winter. Turned out it was about as therapeutic for me to be in just some full spectrum light <laughs> as it was for anything else in the winter. But in so doing, I was, you know, trying to decide what growth medium to use. And I settled on cocoa core because it's pretty affordable. But the downside to cocoa core is that it's known to be high in sodium. I thought, well, this is great. You know, we deal with high sodium. And I've heard over and over again about how, you know, we, there's some extreme results with, with vermicast and sodium mitigation. So let's give this a try. So went ahead and, and did some potted trials in my grow tent of just cocoa core. And I thought I'd use basil because basil can, it's pretty, it's a small seed can be pretty delicate and can tend to be sensitive to these things. And so I went ahead and did three pots. I did one as a control with just cocoa core, one with, with a competing vermicast that was said to be every bit as good or better. And then one with the worm gold that we're used to using and uh, that's said to be high in chitin and cellulose degraders. 
and just started running that trial. Oh, I'm sorry, there was four. And the fourth was uh, just uh, screen manure. And so it didn't take long uh, after emergence that control failed to to grow. It, it germinated and as soon as the cotyledon came out of the ground, it wilted and died. The screen manure was, wasn't much better. In fact, I put three seeds in each pot and of the screen manure and the control, only one germinated and emerged and both of them, the cocoa cord died almost immediately. The screen manure didn't make it to a true leaf. The competitor, actually, two of the three germinated, made it to a cotyledon, and as it was starting to make a true leaf, it was showing multiple deficiencies in yellowing. And the worm gold was was green, flourishing, four times the size, already had several true leaves. And so I let this, I just continued watering and letting this play out. And what I saw was the, the two different worm castings were the only, dis, only ones to survive. And it wasn't much beyond about uh, three nodes on the plant that the competing worm casting was about to perish. So I added some fish hydrolysate thinking perhaps it's just because it's just cellulose. It's just growth medium. And sure enough, that did bring it around. It, it started growing again, but I didn't do anything to the worm gold and so I carried this experiment on until the pots were root bound and I actually moved, ended up moving the worm gold to a larger pot and adding just a little bit of uh, fish hydrolysate at that point and grew it to, you know, a mature plant, harvested it multiple times, it flowered. I managed to rescue the, the other one with the competing, but it, it took quite a bit more fish hydrolysate, et cetera. But it was just truly unbelievable to me. And this stood out because, you know, the amount of worm castings I used, this was the actual castings, but the amount of worm castings I used was, you know, probably the equivalent of probably two tons per acre, but, it, but there was no soil whatsoever. It was literally just fiber and worm castings. And it was able to grow a plant that flourished with zero deficiencies and no soil. And this just totally challenged my thoughts and continues to do so. Did it mitigate the sodium? I believe it did. And furthermore, what I think I saw was, was the impact of just microorganisms and the plant because we didn't have the soil interacting. So I know for me, you know, like a lot of things, when you see something like this, it brings up more questions than answers. But if there's one thing I've seen, it's that it, it continues to make me marvel at what it's capable of doing and the differences that I see with it. Yeah, I would say probably more than any other type of tool in our toolbox from an input standpoint, applying something like this, specifically this, has done more things and does more of a wide variety of things than any other input that we've ever used, which is why it's it's, it's exciting. It's a little more work to deal with because it is an an aerobic process that takes time. So you have to think a day ahead. And then once you have it, you have to use it. Otherwise, those aerobes without oxygen will go anaerobic and then, you know, cause issues and they run out of food and begin to die. So it's a little more challenging. But the other interesting about thing about this is when you do this on a regular basis and you increase these recycling organisms that I don't think people pay attention to, you continue to reduce the issues or increase the suppressiveness to so many diseases and insects. Because as you increase these organisms, there's more and more the spore forms of these pathogens, so to speak, that are in your soil dormant, begin to disappear because they're consumed or suppressed. And the same things with a lot of, you know, insects, fly larvae and nematodes and beetles, you name it. They're all, they're broken down. 
And so you're reducing the bank of these issues over time and it, it just gets better. That's good. One of the things, one of the first things people think about when they hear about brews or teas or things like that is the logistics of it. That's something you just said earlier. And I want to hit on that for just a little bit, but it is difficult to take a little bit more time. You got to think ahead. It's something that we're working on solving some of these problems here at Soilcraft. And one is, is building systems for brew and delivery. So we do the work and take it out and put it on the field. That's one thing. There's challenges in here, such as the time, such as once you brew it, you'll have a certain time to put it on. And when you get large pivots, even you know, 48 hours, those types of things, that brings real challenges. So it's another thing that we're building is an automated system to take care of full-size pivots. Uh, we can bring the trailer out, load it up, hit play, and this thing will do its job and get that whole thing injected. So these are some of the solutions that we're building as Soilcraft to make this, because we've seen this as amazing product. We, you just heard all the results that we've been talking about. Stuff's amazing. And so the big challenge is logistics. And that's something we're working to solve and going to be doing a lot of testing with this year and, and will be available to most people this year, 2022. Yeah, that's, that's good because just as you stated, like sometimes something's worth doing, but it, it's challenging to actually get it on the ground and scaling. There's a lot of these amazing things that have been around for ages in garden size or market garden or whatever, smaller scale. And, and so it's not like this is, this is necessarily new. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's, it's been perfected and there's, there's different ingredients that go into it to make it specifically unique. But often it's just scaling, like you mentioned logistics, which is why I'm thrilled Mason's on the task <laughs> and really been doing a great job to do that. But hey, Trent, would you mind too sharing? I, I know we've had some experience with, particularly with worm gold and onions. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of share that? Because I, th I think it's incredible. And let me just preface saying why, because there are a lot of crops that perhaps they're not dependent on, but nearly dependent on fumigation. Yeah. And onions can be one of those crops. So can you share a bit more about that? Yeah. We had a customer who used, used this in an onion crop in his soils through his irrigation. And they saw basically no disease, visible evidence of, you know, a lot of different types of diseases that they specifically fumigate for. And then he actually went out on a limb and decided to plant onions in the same field a second year, which is not very common to do Crazy. without fumigation yeah. again. And it worked. And so that's really exciting because a lot of these- It worked. You know, what do you mean it worked? They were able to produce a crop effectively and affordably without disease and without having, you know, these major issues that typically they would see with not- you know, fumigating. So that's really exciting for us because again, it goes back to our goal, our paradigm, our vision. How do we find tools and things to affordably deal with the issues that we have that are not toxic to our environment and to the user and to the soil and to the biology, et cetera. And it just comes back to finding these things, learning how to work with nature and then, you know, hack it, so to speak, and take it, multiply it and replicate it and put it into our cropping systems that can solve these problems from a sustainable regenerative standpoint. So it's really exciting. I remember seeing it because I came in at the tail end of, of what you were doing and I remember seeing the field and it was incredible because not only was it 
Okay. Yeah. It didn't have the disease. I mean, I, personally, I think you're going light on it because I saw the field and I, it looked like one of the most even stands I'd seen. I mean, across the field, it was just level. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And I know that field had some, some salt issues in it and some drainage issues. And mm-hmm. it was incredible at how level and how even the field was, the development was, the, the bulb size, like it was amazing. I thought, I mean, that in itself would be, would be valuable, let alone the fact that it, it was onions on onions without disease, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up. And this is really interesting conversation. This is part of the culture of life here versus the culture of death. We're talking about feed the good guys and the bad guys go away. Yep. So yep. with that, let's wrap up this episode. Thank you for listening. It's been another successful podcast. If you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address, please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.